Hey, welcome to the Spiritual Geek Out Podcast. I'm your host, Diane Hudock, where we have fun talking about the phenomenal and the fascinating. From angels to energy healing, from mystical places to mystical teachings, this is a place where we nerd out on the science of the soul. My guest today, he has stories of spiritual exploration, transformation, and self-discovery that span over seven decades. He's an author, a speaker, a counselor, a teacher, a father. He's many things. Writer of Warrior, A Spiritual Odyssey, Alchemy of a Warrior's Heart, and more. Bill McDonald, my friend, I'm so happy to have you. I am delighted to be on your show. I'm delighted to talk to you anytime <laughs> it's supposed to give. <laughs> um, Bill, you have survived, let me get this straight, 12 heart attacks, eight yeah. helicopter crashes. Yeah. Uh, you fell off a roof twice. You survived a car crash. You got propelled by a rocket. You hitchhiked from San Francisco to New York. You've encountered angels. You've had near-death experiences, or should we say you soul-traveled when you were considered unconscious. <laughs> we'll get into that later. You've experienced contact with extraterrestrials. Um, there's a lot to talk about. Where do we begin? Wow. How about <laughs> at the beginning? Yes. In the beginning... In the beginning, there wasn't a Bill McDonald, not in this world yet. <laughs> but but my, my, birth, my birth into this world was, uh, I, I, you probably heard the story before, but uh, some people were born with a silver spoon in their mouth. My mother went to the hospital and said she was getting ready to give birth. They didn't believe her. She goes, no, I'm, I'm getting ready to give birth. But they gave her an enema. And to cut a long story, yucky story short, I'm born in a bedpan, head first with a mouthful of whatever was in there. And life has been looking great ever since. So you not know, a silver spoon. Way to see the glass half full, Bill. Way to see the glass half full. Oh, the glass, glass is always filling. It's always a process <laughs> of filling, never draining. It's always filling. See, people go around and they're always looking at the negative. It's like you see somebody now, they watch television. Oh my God, there's coronavirus everywhere. People are dying. People are getting sick. There's crazy politicians. There's anger. There's hate. Uh, I'm not there. I'm sorry. I'm just not there. I don't have time to be worried. I don't have, I don't have time to hate. And to me, life is really a truly a beautiful thing, especially when you got grandchildren or children, you got young children. It's the same kind of feeling when you get young people around you. It's a a sense of hope. Every time I see a child, I know there's hope out there in the world. So yeah, it's upbeat. It's all about attitude towards life. Yeah. Well, you personify that for me. And that's why I wanted to bring you on the show because you've endured a lot. And not to say that everyone hasn't endured their own level of suffering. Of course, no one is immune to that. And everyone, as we say in spiritual psychology, has their own unique curriculum. And we could call that karma. We can call that many things. But yours uh, spans a lot of different areas in life. Of course, starting with Vietnam. And I should actually take it back and starting with your childhood. 
because you grew up in a really uh, intense, challenging environment. And I believe that many of the um, black sheep of the family, if you will, they are the ones that become the wayfarers. They're the ones that become the spiritual teachers, the healers, um, the leaders, because they had to overcome so much early on that it really did shape them. And they learned to endure and they developed certain skill sets for life. And um, I was wondering, do you want to go a little bit into your childhood and really how that um, propelled you towards your purpose? First off, you hear all these stories, especially if you go to a 12-step group, how I was before and I got, I got God, I got sobered, things happened well. I never had that moment where I had to go anywhere. I kind of started meditating as soon as I can remember, two years old, three years old. I was having experiences, what you call STEs now, spiritually transformative experiences, alien abduction encounter. And the thing about the alien abduction, which happened when I was five, uh, and my sister, younger sister, and my older sister, the three of us witnessed it. We all we all knew it happened. What was weird, we had we had this experience where you're abducted. We, we could talk in brief for a long time on that at some other place. Um, but we didn't talk about it. It happened in 1950, 51. Mm-hmm. We didn't talk about it until 2002 or something. I mean, over 50 years later, we ever talked about it. They acknowledged it, but didn't want to talk about it. So, yeah, so that was kind of, a, I'd say that was an unusual thing in childhood. I, and I also had, uh, me and my little sister would lay out in, a, in the back in the back part of our house, we lived in these tenement houses, there was a hill, and we'd lay there, just young kids, four, five, six, seven years old, and we'd watch the sky, and we would, we'd have this contest. Who could move a cloud the farthest, quickest? Who could dissolve a cloud? Mm-hmm. And that's crazy talk. If you tell an adult at that age what you're doing, yeah, come on. But we didn't. We just did it. Mm-hmm. And then we used to play a card game with a deck of cards, and you, I would hold it, and I'd give a mental image of what the, the card was. My sister would have to guess, and I, know, I would guess back and forth. 52 cards, and she would get 18, 20, right, pretty much regularly. And uh, I would get uh, up to 42, 30 to 42. And, but I mean, right, I mean, you had, if it was an eight of clubs, you had to say an eight of clubs. If you said it was an eight of spades or diamonds, you're wrong. Right. So it had to be exact. So it was exact 52 cards. So it was like, you know, not just, is it an eight, is it an ace? So we thought that was normal. And then we used to play a game where you'd think of a, a nursery rhyme or a song or something, and you had three guesses, three guesses what it was. Like it was Humpty Dumpty, you know, or Mary Had a Little Lamb or whatever it was, several words put together. And we would, we would get it almost regularly. Mm-hmm. So at the time, looking back on that in amazement now, you know, 70 years later, I look back and I say, you know, that's, that's not normal. That's, that's definitely different. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but that was your normal. That was my normal. So for me, it was, and then at the age of eight, I mean, there's a lot of stuff happened in between there, but at the age of eight, I got deathly, literally deathly ill. And so ill that they, uh, they sent me home from school. I was going to school. Nobody, 
my mother was sending me out of the house. I was going to school sick. I was like looking like a POW. Was, my weight was gone and uh, I looked, you know, really bad. And finally some relative came over, my aunt, and told my mother, take him to the doctor. He's <laughs> like he's dying. So by the time I got to the doctor, the doctor goes, take him to ER. He's dying, right? So I, uh, I end up at eight years old, never been on my own in my life, never separated, no overnight with anybody who was home. At eight, eight, uh, eight years old, I ended up being taken to a county hospital, dropped off, strapped into a gurney. Why I hear him telling my my uh, stepdad and my mother, uh, don't think he's going to make it. Kind of bringing him in too late. That's what I'm hearing in the background, right? Like, well, that's really good. What's going on here? And then they leave, and I'm wheeled down the hall, strapped in like a prisoner in this you know device, rolling down. Then they take me outside to an isolation ward. And while I'm in the isolation ward, they come in and they got these big needles that are about a foot long. And uh, some doctor out there would probably tell me how long it was. And at eight years old, they looked like a foot long. They were big. They were going to go in through my back, puncture my lungs, and pull out fluid from the lungs. Hmm. You had pleurisy, right? What was that? Pleurisy. Yeah, pleurisy in the chest, pneumonia in both lungs. I had Bryce's disease of the kidney, which is a fancy name for a lot of different diseases. But I, it was... If I if nowadays they probably would have put me on a, a, on a dialysis, but it wasn't that was a big deal back then. They were still working on that stuff, so it looked bad. It looked like I was going to die. So everybody was kind of treating me kind of offhandedly. Nobody told me what was going on. Nobody told me what was going to happen. And they stripped me down my underwear. They poked these needles in, and then they tell me get in bed. It's done. Not are you okay? How do you feel? Tap my hand. You know, you picture a child in the hospital. Somebody's going to do something. Yeah. And they just turn the lights off. Don't bother us unless you're in real bad trouble. Then push that button. But don't bring us down here for nothing. Mm. So I'm there. And the first night in this uh, isolation ward all by myself, I lay down. And all of a sudden, I'm consciously floating. You know that? And you would know this because... When you start to experience an out of bodily sensation, it's, you know you're not there anymore. It's like you're floating. Else, you're, right. It's it's a sensation, even though you don't have a body to have that sensation. You feel it anyway. It's like right. you're drifting. And I look down in the darkness, and just below me is my body. And I don't look at it and say that's me. I go, that's the body. You know, at the, even at eight years old, I go, that's not me. That's the body. Here I am, right. And I'm Did kind you think of you were dying? I'm, I'm, I'm dying or dead. I don't know which. And uh, but the body's just, it's out. It's not functioning. And so all of a sudden, I'm staring into the darkness. The darkness keeps getting brighter and brighter and lighter and lighter. And pretty soon, it's like I'm in a cloud. You know, if you, for those of us that fly in aviation and helicopters and everything, I mean, I've actually flown in clouds with the doors open in a helicopter. It's like that look, you know, it's mm-hmm. like you're this big mushroom. It's just really cool. And, and then I see this panorama, this view. I didn't know it at the time, but it was like the next 50 years rolling out of my life. Wow. Who I was going to marry, where I was going to live. Vietnam, but I didn't know it was Vietnam. I didn't know what Vietnam was. I, you, I couldn't have, I didn't even, never heard of it. But I saw helicopters. I saw people getting blown up. I didn't see myself getting killed. So that was good news. 
But I watched all this stuff like a observer. I'm observing what appears to be my future. And as it turns out, that was a correct assumption. Even though I was eight years old, I saw everything being played out. And I saw Vietnam. I saw these battlefields and things. And what's weird was I'm watching this like I'm transported to the future. And I'm hovering over these battlefields. I'm, I'm floating outside these helicopters looking in at, at, at what appears to be me in the future behind a machine gun. And it's like, I'm an observer. Hmm. But I sense, because I look around, this is something I haven't talked about in any other videos, because uh, I always kind of held it as sacred or crazy, I don't know which. But when I'm observing this, I'm not alone. I'm with others observing the future. Mm. Like, like simultaneously they're observing their future as you're observing your future? No, they're they're observing what I'm observing, but they're there to help me when that time comes. I got, got it. These guys, they're going to be there for me when I'm there. Got it. Okay. That was the sense I got. Not spoken. No spoken. Not, nothing spoken. No transmission, communication, bring that about. And as it turned out, when I was over there, I always kind of felt, you know, when all the crazy stuff was happening and explosions going off, people shooting at me. The person you're seeing right now, or if somebody's listening to this, I, I, sound, I, I was calm. I was cool. Uh, there was no fear. There was no excitement. Uh, I never rose emotionally to any level other than I was always in that state of, I'm loved. Hmm. And even when I fired my machine gun at the quote-unquote enemies, which I don't believe there are any enemies, but the people on the the patriots on the other side fighting for their country, right? Um, I prayed for them. Mm-hmm. The whole thing was a prayerful thing. I prayed for them. I didn't want anybody to be suffering, you know, in pain. Uh, and I certainly didn't want to have any anger towards anybody. Even if the person was trying to kill me, which they were trying to kill me. Uh, no anger. It's not, not what I, it's not what I was made for. That wasn't a part of me. So anyways, I watched these visions go on. And while these visions are going on, there's these two numbers that are rolling through the clouds. A two and a nine. And then the two would flip over and it looked like, if you take a two, you flip it over, it looks like a five if you kind of turn it around. Mm-hmm. So it was like 29, 59. And I go, huh. Does that mean I'm going to die at 29? Maybe? Or, or maybe 59? <laughs> I didn't know. That was just my guess at eight years old. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't have a clue. Now, later on, when I when I get into second near-death experience, I'll tell you how that happens. But So that was just kind of in the background. So I had this experience, and it went on for – there's no time when you have the experience. I have no clue how long it was, no clock. I mean, it could have been – it felt like – all evening. Mm-hmm. Could have been two minutes. Right. No way of knowing. But I know that the body was just still laying there in the bed, not breathing, not doing anything, just out. And I was separate. And I knew that is, that's the way this thing is, that we really are not the body. I mean, it really brought, I always believed it, even at that age. But seeing it, you go, no, I am not the body because I'm this this light, 
this energy that's floating around here in the future, no less. Mm -hmm. So the good news was I saw and realized that I have a future. Therefore, most people have a near-death experience as an adult, let's say, and they talk about, they get a, a, a view a past of all the stuff they did that life, like a past life review or a mm -hmm. life review or something. This was not a review, but a preview. That's really interesting point you brought up. Um, when I was a senior at Sarah Lawrence College, my uh, spiritual, what was it? Um, psychology of religion class. My senior thesis paper was on NDEs, on near-death experiences. And I was just, I was just one of those people, as you can imagine, that was always drawn to this stuff. I had the Time Life books, you know, Mysteries of the Unknown when I was like eight. And I didn't want hula hoops. I wanted like a pyramid in my backyard. <laughs> and so um, when it got time to go to college, I was studying a lot of these more random um, courses that had to do with spirituality and, and ancient mysteries and things like that. So my spiritual, uh, my, my senior thesis paper was on NDEs. And to your point, um, the majority of people, I interviewed over 30 people that had NDEs, and they all had a very similar experience of going through the tunnel. Uh, the classic, the classic NDE story, seeing someone that's uh, departed before them, probably a family member, or seeing someone that they can relate to, uh, be it a Christ or be it Buddha or be it anyone like that, Muhammad, um, to meet them at the end of the tunnel. And also they all flatlined. Now you, from your story, you didn't exactly flatline. You were really ill. You could have gone, sounds like one way or, or another, but this is a very unusual um, experience to me because it doesn't have those telltale um, parts and pieces of a classic NDE. No, no, it doesn't. And, and what's weird is since you know me a little bit better than most people, and I'll open up to you since you give it to interview and you want the real. I want the stuff, Bill. Everybody wants the stuff. I've never nugget. said my books. Mm -hmm. I've never said a lecture. Never even told my family. Well, when I say these other beings were watching with me, these were great ones, great souls. They weren't just people I had lives and they were just friends waiting for me or something. Or These were, well, I met them in my third near-death experience. Let's put it that way. Mm. We'll, we'll go there. Yeah, but well, let's these go. Were, these, were, these, were, these were highly evolved. Some might call them ascended masters. I was just going to ask you that. So are they part, and I don't know if some people, some people listening to this will know who's on the karmic board, if they studied um, spiritual text, or if they just got um, hits in their meditation along their own personal spiritual journey. And, um, and who am I to say that someone is or isn't of the karmic board? I can only tell you my direct experience, just like you're giving me yours. But would you say now, in hindsight, having these experiences, do you, can you give some names? Do you want to give names? Were they part of what we call the karmic board, this committee that oversees, if you will, humanity? 
It was 18 plus one. 18 plus one uh, masters? 18 that were like a collective. And okay. then it was part of, but not necessarily the collective. All right. So just let it go as a mystery for now. Okay. All right. So let's let's go NDE since we're on the subject. Let's kind of let's kind of roll that direction so it kind of makes sense. So there I am, uh, and the next day, of course, nobody talks. There's nobody to talk to about it. It's like you know, I'm there for one almost one solid year: Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, Earth Day, all the holidays. I get visitors on Sundays about. 10, 15 minutes at a shot. That's it. I'm alone. Mm. Sometimes there's nobody else in my room. Sometimes in a ward with other two or three kids that stay a little while and they're gone, but I'm the only one that's still always there. Uh, no television, no radio, no record player, no books, no toys, no reading material, no school, no coloring books. Nothing. Best thing that ever happened to me. Why? It forced me to go within. I mean, they wake you up when the shift changes. Graveyard shift gets off, the nurse comes in, you know, she signs off, and next one comes in, they take your temperature, they do what they got to do. But they get you up at six o'clock. They don't let you go back to sleep. I can't get out of bed. I'm on total bed rest. I can't go to the bathroom, get a shower. Everything's got to be done while in bed. And uh, so you have nothing but time from six in the morning till they turn the lights off at nine at night. That's 15 hours a day of nothing. Mm -hmm. And for some people, they're probably experiencing that now during COVID. (laughs) You know, it's like, ah, you know, they're going crazy and they got, they got their text on their phones and they're, they're on the internet and all that. And they think they're going crazy because they got nothing to do. Try no Netflix, try no movies, try nothing. Right. no, no internet, no, no, hey, how you doing, buddy? You know, what's happening? Nothing, not even a phone. But it developed the inner strength, the inner will, the inner, I hate to say this at that age, but the inner wisdom for an eight-year-old, it was a huge step. Uh, and I would go every day. I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, but I'd take and I'd push my eyeballs when they were closed together so they'd be looking at my spiritual eye and I'd put my thumbs on my ears to close off the sound. And, and I was trying breathing through my, imagine I was breathing through my spine and through my nave. I was doing all kinds of- You're doing not even no you don't even know it. <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing, right? Right. In fact, I was doing one, one thing that I'd learned later from Gurnoff, and then I learned it also from a Tibetan monk in 2004. And that was just breathing through the navel and bringing it up and, you know, the whole thing, right? I was doing that with no clue. I didn't have names for these things. What is it? Is that right? I don't know what you do for that. But I'd be doing that all day long. Mm. 15 hours. What are you going to do? So my mind became a playground. And your body became a capacitator of light. Yeah, it was just, the body was there, great, give them the shots. I got shots every single day for a year, every single day. Wow. For what? Were they to? They were giving me antibody, antidotes of things. Okay. 
anti this. Anti- anyway, I was really, really sick. I'm not going into heavy details on the medical because there's people out there to probably understand it more than I do, but it, it was bad. It was bad medical. And, it, and they kept thinking that I was never going to get out of the hospital. But I also think that the staff, because a couple of times I heard them say, he's a ward of the county, you know, the hospital. I think in my, my parents, my mother and dad, stepdad dropped me off there. I think the county kind of took over. They made all the decisions because uh, they decided one day uh, they wanted to do an experiment. Oh, this is another story. It's not even in my book. Uh, I got a big scar here on my wrist. Well, you can't see it on here, but there's a big scar. One day I went, they took me out of bed and they laid me on this table and they said, we're doing a study on, 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 on the muscles. We're going to take a chunk of your muscles to compare it to cadavers and other things and people with diseases and stuff. I go, is this a treatment for me? Well, no, it's not going to do anything for you, but that scar will heal. So they, I went through an operation on my body that was pure experiment right? Oh. for their study team for university, whatever it was. And they took my chunk of my muscle out of my arm and sewed it up. There was like a dozen stitches for no uh, medical reason for my benefit. And wow. at eight years old, I was mad. Yeah. Who gave it? Well, your mother signed it. You know, okay, we're going to do it. And the county's going to do it. And I go, what mother would sign that? Yeah. And did your mother even know what she was signing? Apparently when she committed me, I was in that they, that their cure. So I, I think that's, she might've signed an initial thing when she came here, but nobody wants her kid experimented on. Of course. Anyway, so getting past all that, some people read my book and they'll read even deeper, weirder stuff and say, oh, what a terrible childhood. Now let's go. And we should say this book is The Warrior Spirituals, a Spiritual Odyssey, right? Because that's yeah. what I'm called. Yeah, it's, it's my autobiography and it takes from birth to a heart attack on Machu Picchu, which is a great place to end a book, right? In 2004. But I, um, I wouldn't trade those experiences. And this is... Truthful statement. I wouldn't trade that again for nothing. I could or not have gotten a better spiritual education. It was like somebody put me in a cave for a year away from my crazy family. Think about this, because you were young once upon a time, that couple of days ago, right? So bless you. Um, and, and let's just imagine, let's pretend that maybe your family is not totally the greatest family in the world. Let's just say maybe you've got a couple of crazy people. Just imagine that. Okay, just imagine that. Um, and if somebody would have took you and said, well, we're going to take you away for a whole year of peace, nobody yelling, nobody fighting, nobody putting a gun to your head, nobody threatening you, no beatings, no nothing, but you got to undo, you got to do all this stuff too. I would have said, sign me up. Mm. I did before I came. Yeah, I'll sign up for that. That's okay. That's a good trade-off. Maybe somewhere in your multidimensional self as a higher being, as their higher self, I should say, spoke to your basic self and said, yeah, how about we go down this road? Yeah, it's a good deal. Yeah. Yeah. I had, I never felt anger towards my parents. Actually, I still don't. I never felt any anger towards my parents. Now you've read my book about me being experimented on the stage with yes. 30 doctors and they all come up trying needles in me and, Astonishing. and stuff and I wouldn't cry and that's another whole long story but people read that stuff and, and it get actually people call me up and they go I had a high school friend a guy belonged to a motorcycle gang and 
phoned me up at four o'clock in the morning. Mm. I mean, this is like 50 years after high school, right? And he says, damn you, Bill. I go, what? Who's this? This, <laughs> this is Dondi Nettles. You know, I went to school with you. You know, but I just read your story. You know, I was, I started reading that yesterday after dinner. I was up till just now finishing that damn book. And it made me cry. And I go, oh, man. He says, I want to buy two cases. I want, to, I want you to sign them all. I said, bought two cases of my book. I signed them all to his relatives and shipped them out. I mean, I mean you know, it's like about $500 I made off this guy. Great. You buy all the books you want, right? But he said he never read a book in his life. It was the first book he actually read cover to cover. But he come away like, whoa, terrible. I feel sorry for you. And I'm going, I don't even feel sorry for me. They don't See, people don't understand it's not what happens to you. It's your attitude about it. Yes. So if you know that this is all just a dream, it's not real, you're going to have pain. Everybody has pain. But there's a choice about having suffering. Mm-hmm. I never suffered. Pain? Yeah. I mean, I've had my share of pain. You know, pain? Oh, yeah, that's good. It's good pain. But suffering is always a choice. And I always like to be in charge and control. Even when things were happening to me in the medical thing, when I was in the hospital, I would never show emotion. I would like, I'm not going to give the satisfaction of showing pain. Cut me. Shoot me. Whatever you're going to do, right? Poke me. Didn't matter. Didn't matter. I've never, never changed my expression. I was just it. I was able to actually develop that same trait in Vietnam <laughs> to perfection. I got to Vietnam. I was already, already was already hardened for that. Mm. And going to combat, everything literally 30, 40 people get killed around me or more. And I would still just be the same me. And it wasn't like I was suppressing anything. It wasn't suppression. It was an understanding that it's all just a dream. Mm. You bring up a really Great point. That makes me think about, since you write about being a spiritual warrior in some of your books, um, what the tenets are really, or what the definition is of a spiritual warrior. And to me, when I read your books and I think about you and knowing you as I do, you possess this wonderful quality um, that's living inside of you called cooperation. And to me, a spiritual warrior's greatest uh, poison, I guess, for lack of a better word, is resistance. And reading your books, as the reader, like your friend that called you up at 4 a.m., we can have the experience of, oh, my word, I cannot believe he didn't act this way or he didn't go that way, or he didn't say this, or he didn't do that, or he didn't grab the gun, or he didn't, you name it, right? You have so many options. And it really, you are, you really display in your stories and in your choices, this tenant to me of a spiritual warrior, which is cooperation, which to me is a law of spirit. If you want to be in the flow I'm not saying you have to like what's happening, but at least we have to come into some level of cooperation so that we can work with the presence of the suffering and we can grow from it. We can come into the opportunity that lies within it, right? 
You can tell me if I'm wrong. No. <laughs> if, you, if you ever listen to my talks, I'm hanging around people that you know, if you've ever heard me, you'll hear people say, yeah, Bill Lewis says he embraces his karma. What does that mean? That's what I really tell people. Embrace your karma. Well, yeah. this is happening. That's happening. They're worried about tomorrow. And I can about pay the bills. I'll be homeless. I'm dying. I said, embrace your karma. Mm-hmm. Who cares? Just deal with it now. Bring it on. Yeah. So, like, if I got a choice, uh, you know, something's happening to me. Uh, you want it now or next week? Give it to me right now. Let's yeah. do it, man. Get it over with. So, Let's go. Let's work it. Let's get rid of it. Yeah. But in, in, in Vietnam, and it's interesting because you asked what a spiritual warrior is. It's not necessarily or even implied to be a combat veteran. This is an inner battle. This is an inner war. Yeah. This is being able to conquer the greatest enemy of all. Yeah. The ego. Yeah. And the ego says, you've hurt me. I'm a victim. The ego says, I'm in pain and I'm suffering. The ego says, why me? Right? All these things. Mm-hmm. The classic argument. Where it goes, why not me? Right. Why not? Give it to me. Right. And it's better I get it than somebody I love gets it. You know? So you always kind of shield that negative from others if you can. You know, for some people, they got to walk up a hill, but they think it's Mount Everest, right? And it's only a 300-foot hill. And, and somebody else is climbing Mount Everest, and it's like, it's a hill. It's all your perceptions. Because some people think they're the worst victims in the world. Everything negative happens to me. Woe is me. Something's, uh, you know, something's going to go wrong. It will happen. I'll tell you what. Life is very good about giving you exactly what you believe you're going to get. Yes. I, I counsel people all the time and they go, Oh, you don't understand Reverend Bill. I have, I, this, I did this. I go, look, do you want, do you want me to tell you what to do? Or do you want to enjoy your, your own private pity party here and be the victim? Yeah. A lot of people just want to tell you, and you counsel people. A lot of people just want to tell you their woes me story. Yeah, they want to be attached to their story, and that's their identity. Yeah, so it's like, and I deal with PTSD veterans, and and when they come to me, they know, well, he's been in combat. He's been in such some of these guys have been in my own unit. I know what they've been through, and I've doubled or tripled what they've been through. So it's like, don't play this game with me. Mm-hmm. Don't don't play the game with me. Either you want to get healed or you don't. Mm-hmm. You know, so. Um, a spiritual well, warrior could be a woman, could be a child, could be a warrior. But since somebody's a combat veteran, doesn't make them a true spiritual warrior either, because your intentions of what you're engaged in is the real judgment quality here. In other words, your karma is going to be based on your intentions. If you go to war and you hate those guys and you're racist towards those people and, and, you, and you hate their religion, you hate them for their nationality and all that stuff. And you're angry and, and you go in there and, and you enjoy it, you know, just, you know, you just whole different level. They're maybe fighting for their country, but they're building some bad karma. Mm-hmm. Somebody else is going there and this guy's some farm boy. He's pacifist kind of, but, He's a combat and they're trying to kill his buddy. So he has to shoot. If he doesn't shoot, the other guys will get killed. Whole different motive, right? Somebody else is there purely patriotic. I'm doing this. But if somebody surrenders, we stop firing, you know, and if we don't have to make it miserable for the person, we don't. But we don't have to hate him. So there's all these levels. It's like murder. 
You can murder somebody, right? You can blow somebody away premeditated. A doctor could be drunk, make a mistake, kill somebody. Is that murder? Wasn't intentional, but there is some karma there, right? Or the doctor could just made a mistake because they sneezed or whatever, right? Or they just made the wrong decision. How much bad karma should that be, right? So, and then there's somebody else that, uh, a cop, he kills somebody that's, you know, trying to do something to a kid, has a knife to a kid's throat and he shoots a guy or something. So to save somebody, he had to kill somebody. So there's all these levels of killing and then unnecessarily murder. And then again, if you're like me and you believe this whole thing is just a dream anyway, there is no one, no one's been born, no one's dying, no one's getting killed. The unfortunate part, I always have to say this because I got an audience going, oh my God, I lost a kid, I lost this. I'm saying the unfortunate part is all of us with bodies have bought into this reality that we're in. We believe that we're this ego, that we believe we're this body. Therefore, we believe in death and birth and rebirth and all the other stuff. Right. But once you don't accept that anymore, there's a there is no more birth. It's like, it's all an illusion. It's all an illusion. Um, you make me think about a, another author that I feel like really reflects how you live your life. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of Parker Palmer. He wrote a book called Let Your Life Speak, another great book. But he he talks about, in his way of reinterpreting his journey and his search for selfhood, um, he says, before you tell your life what you intend to do with it, listen for what it intends to do with you. And he continues on and says, before you tell your life what truths and values you have decided to live up to, let your life tell you what truths you embody and what values you represent. And the stories that you share particularly as we can move on to some of the stories in Vietnam, really embody that statement to me. Because like you said, if you have all these intentions or beliefs or values that are in alignment with hatred, and I don't even know if I could call that a value, <laughs> then your actions are going to follow and your life will be a blockchain of hatred. Um, can we jump to 744? Yeah. After 744, you had a premonition oh, when you were in combat. Yeah. Can you talk about that? What's interesting is I just got friended by the nephew of the guy that got killed on that helicopter that I tried to save his life. I just got friended two days ago. Wow. Oh, this is Darrell. This is this guy, right? Uh, and what's interesting, before I wrote that book, the brother of the older, the younger brother of this guy that got killed in the aircraft, and I'll give you the story, but the older brother, uh, or, or the, the older brother was the one that was killed in Vietnam with me. Uh, the younger brother never talked about it with anywhere. They moved, they never talked about it. Nobody knew. I was. I met his wife because she read my book. And she says, hey, wait, who's this guy, right? That's My husband has a brother I didn't know about. They've been married like, I don't know, 15, 20 years. And she found out 
that she had a brother-in-law that was dead, never even knew he was in Nam. Mm. It's like, it's crazy, right? Anyway, so it's interesting when you, when you write a book and it goes out there and I've gotten contacted by various peoples from different stories and things I've told, they go, oh yeah, you know, that was one of them. Anyway, so in Vietnam, I was a crew chief door gunner and I was in charge for a period of several months of, of all the door gunners and all the crew chiefs from my platoon. So there was like 11 helicopters in my platoon. And we would uh, schedule one gunner and a crew chief on each one. Both are, are door gunners, but one's a crew chief like I was. In other words, I carried also tools in case something went wrong. I'm working on the helicopter out of nowhere. So anyway, so you work on a helicopter, you're a mechanic, but you're also on there every day flying. And but it was my job to put the crews together each day. In other words, you're flying today, you're not flying today. You know, your ship's going up. So in other words, there was a lot of karmic responsibility. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, I mean, uh, you are really. There's some people didn't want to make that decision, you know. Huh. I'm making a decision. So there's, anyway, one day I come back from my flight and my ship was going to be in for maintenance the next day. So I actually had a day off. Yay. So I'm walking past this helicopter and my sergeant goes, hey, Mac. You know, all, all McDonald's are Mac in the army. You know, Mac, you know, I'm always an Irishman. So, hey, Mac, he says, nobody's flying 744. Uh, tomorrow we don't have a crew. We don't have enough people. You want to do the maintenance on it tonight and fly with it tomorrow? Okay, great. All right. So, all right. But as soon as I walked over to the helicopter and put the palm and the fingers of my hand on the skin of the helicopter's Helicopters are thin metal, you know, some people say it's like a beer can, but it's a little thicker, but anyway, it's this metal. And I put my hand on there and it's going to tell you, it's going to take me a hundred times longer to tell you what I experienced than what actually happened. Because what happened was just like that. And I pulled my hand off. It felt like it was burnt. But when I put my hand on there, I had an instantaneous vision. It's the only word I could use, but I'm, I'm actually viewing this in the future. So vision, I'm actually there watching it. This helicopter's going through the sky and the rotor with the blades on it freezes up and stops. You know, it's going, you know, 4,600 RPMs all of a sudden, you know, and this helicopter's twisting and turning. So in other words, it froze up and it twisted the helicopter and it lands on a triple canopy jungle below. Meaning there's trees everywhere. There's no open spot. It crashes through and tears itself apart on these trees. And I see all these bodies falling out. And I see all these guys on fire, oh. you know, rolling around and running through the jungle and everything. And I saw all that just like that. And I'm going, number one, this thing's going to crash. It's going to burn. And everybody on it's going to die. And there's something wrong with the rotor, the rotor head. So I took the, the, they have a log. It's like a flight log. You know, the pilot fills it out. The mechanic fills it out. And you write down there. Uh, you know, change the oil, uh, there's vibration. You put down things that are wrong with it and you give it different degrees of, of, a, of a, an indicator on there. If you put a red X in there, that means like you got a major uh, engine part out or it should be, it's don't fly it. There's something, you know, it ain't gonna fly, right? right? So I put down a red X and I just put down rotor head. It's gonna fail, going to fail. <laughs> so 
everybody gets upset. And, and I, and I said, I ain't going to sign it off. So the, you know, the sergeant, everybody comes over. How can you sign? I said, hey, you're going to sign it off. This thing's going to crash. It's going to burn. Something's wrong with that rotor head. It's going to stop. It's going to twist. Everybody's going to get killed. Yeah, come on. So they, they brought three guys over to sign it off. Three bad. Nobody wanted to do it alone. So three other expert mechanics came to inspect it. They all inspected. Well, after I told them what to look for, nobody find it. I'm saying, no, it's there. It's there. So by now, the, everybody's mad. So I go see the uh, sergeant, ma- the, the major that's in charge of the company, company commander. I tell him, I ain't flying on it. And you can't schedule tomorrow because it's going to crash and burn. You tell him, this guy, it's going to crash and burn. I know this. You can't put anybody on there. I'm a sergeant, right? Uh, E5. Uh, and uh, so he goes, what do you tell me what to do? You're signed on there. You go tomorrow. I'll court-martial you. And I said, court-martial me. Put me on something else. I said, that's just only, it was scheduled for what they call like milk run. It was basically going to pick up mail and some people moving from LZ. There no, were no combat assaults. It was an easy assignment. And I said, no, everybody's going to die on that tomorrow. So he threatened to court-martial me. And, and, I, and meanwhile, I said, okay, meanwhile, do whatever you're going to do. I'll go on another flight. Do what did he say when you said all oh, these people are going to die? Was he like, you're crazy? Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. Anybody but you would have thought so. <laughs> you're more open-minded. The <laughs> army, not so much. So, uh, so I go back to the, the hooch where my flight platoon's in. You got guys all sleeping in double-decker bunks. And there's a new guy there, Algier Durrell. And he transferred in from Saigon, where he had an office job in an air-conditioned office. Remember the old days, you were a computer programmer, which means you put these little cards with holes in them in a machine, IBM cards. That was it. That was a big programming thing there with cards. <laughs> anyway, but he, but he had a hotel room. He was in air-conditioned. He ate in a restaurant. It was like, come on. He wanted to be in war. So he volunteered to be a door guy. And, of course, I figured if he's that stupid, take him, right? So anyway, so they... They brought him into the company. As soon as I saw him and I shook his hand, when I shook his hand, I saw him as one of those guys dying. Oh, wow. And I started, tears started rolling. I mean, I'm a grown adult man, right? But tears were coming down my cheek. People going, what's wrong with McDonald, man? What's this crazy guy? And I said, whatever you do tomorrow, don't go out flying. Well, this is his first couple hours in the company. Doesn't know anybody or anything. Thinks I'm crazy. And he hasn't taken a flight physical, doesn't have any flight equipment, doesn't know what he's doing. So therefore, he shouldn't be out anyway. And I said, if they come to you tomorrow and tell you to get on that aircraft out there, and I gave him the tail number, and I said, don't go. Because if you go, you're never coming back. What did he say? You're crazy, man. Get this crazy guy away from me, right? I said, no. Mm-hmm. I was persistent, and he, nobody listened to me. I'm like, ah, Mac, leave. Mac, you've been here too long. You know, I said, okay. So the next day I get up. It's still there. I get up. I fly. I go on a combat assault. I'm getting shot at all day long. I'm taking, you know, I'm taking risks, right? Mm-hmm. I'm out there. I wasn't afraid to take risks. Come back, and that other helicopter's gone. So I go right out to the, the commanding officer's office, and I go, how dare you let that aircraft go, right? How dare you do that? Like, what right do I have to ask him? Hmm. So where's it at? He says, well, it's uh, it's not back yet. I said, what time is it supposed to be back? Oh, two or three hours ago? I said, you know, it only holds two hours worth of jet fuel. In two hours, it's got to land someplace. So it ain't now flying around lost. It's sitting down someplace. And I said, and you've killed all those guys. Oh, man. I told you. 
blah, 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 blah. Anyway, so there, I left there, and a couple, two, three pilots were putting together a uh, search and rescue group. And they saw me walking out of the office, and they, everybody heard the story about me saying it was going to crash and burn. They go, they didn't know where it was at. They didn't know where to go. And they go, hey, Mac, said, you know everything, quote, unquote, said, you know everything. Why don't you come with us? Help us locate it. I jumped right on. I feel like I could find it. It's 360 degrees. It could have went any direction, right, on the map, right? Yeah. Sun is starting to set. We get up in the air, and the pilot's hovering, and he goes, where do you go, Mac? And I just point out general direction away from the base. I said, head there. And they looked at each other. And what's really crazy is they did exactly what I said. It's like, you don't believe me, but they're going to follow my directions. Exactly, right. right. So they do. So we're flying out. And pretty soon, about 10 minutes, we see a forest fire. And then we get closer and closer. And there's the wreck spread out below where the bodies are there. Uh, It's crashed. It's burned. There's dead people. So I have a rope. I tie it to the thing. I'm going to go down this rope through this canopy of trees and everything else in the middle of the forest fire and see if there's any survivors. And, and the pilot stopped me. No, no, we ain't led you down there. We don't know if there's bad guys on, you know, and we, we ain't going to be hovering up over above this. I mean, and I go, and it's a good thing because I don't know if you ever had a gym class where you got a rope and you had to climb a rope in a gym class. Unfortunately. <laughs> it is not so easy climbing up a rope. No. Going down is easy. Going back up. I got a feeling I had I gone down, I didn't have any knots in it. It was just a great <laughs> I thought afterwards, I thought, well, maybe they should save my life because I would have got down and I could have got up. They would have left me overnight there, you know. So uh, next day they go out there and inspected everything and find all the bodies. I find out that that guy, they didn't have a crew. So they recruited this guy. I said, ah, here, just get this gun. And then every time they pick up somebody at another place, another soldier or something, they just put him behind the other machine gun. Mm. So they didn't have a crew chief, but they had two gunners. And every time they picked a passenger, they put it behind the gun. So they had, you know, both guns manned. But it only we only lost three guys from our company. The fourth guy would have been me. Mm. And have a replacement for me. Nobody else would go on. <laughs> no. Anyway, so the Army... Brings out an investigation team because, you know, the major's mad at me. So he calls in for an investigation. You know, like NCIS, they got the CID, hmm. which is the Army, like, you know, internal thing. So they come out. And then a couple of guys I find out later on that were CIA. They came out and they put me in a canvas tent, 100-degree days with, the you know, the humidity crazy in Vietnam. And they got a... a, a 200, 100, 200 watt, a huge light bulb right over my head, about six inches, bright. I'm sitting on a stool with no back. And they grill me for eight hours a day for three days. How'd you know they were going to crash and burn? What did you do to that aircraft? Confess, you killed all those guys. Nobody could have known that. And it went on for three days. Then they finally ended by saying, we know you did it. We're going to be watching you. Someday when you're least expected, we're going to be arresting you. I don't care if it takes 20 years. Okay, so that's most people that would worry them, right? Me, I go. Now, that was 1967, 2003, four, two, someplace in there. I get a call on my phone, 
And on the identification, it says Langley, Virginia. I, I'll get a call. I don't know anybody in Langley, Virginia, right? CIA. So, and as a conversation, to make a long story short, the conversation basically, the guy had my file. And I asked for a copy, and he said, no. I said, I have a right to. He says, okay, great. You'll get it. Everything will be redacted but your name. Hmm. I go, what does it say? It's from interviews with you. Why would he keep it at this time? Oh, it's not just that one. It's all these other things you did, too. And I go, what? You got, how much of a file do you have? They said, they've been following you for a while. And he says, you're not alone. I go, what? So apparently there was a whole group of a few people in Nam, a few people in the Gulf War, a few people later, a few people, in, you know, as the military started finding guys that had weird situations, they were recruiting them. You know, very quietly, they were recruiting them. Stanford, you know, what they had the Stargate program, a couple of those yeah, things. Remote shoot to that. There's also, as I got from inside other people, there's also, I don't know the code name for it. That's top secret. Okay. I don't know exactly what it is, but there's something that everybody else that's not a part of the program calls it the Jedi Project, Jedi Warrior Project. In other words, they're developing a small group, a little small squad, like a little army. Yeah. Okay. To go in someplace and penetrate and use their abilities to manipulate the field, stimulate whatever it is, find out, you know, over here, see, know something's going to happen. I don't know whatever their plan was. They were doing it because the Russians were doing it. Mm. That's how all these, and the Stargate, among other things, was canceled. They spent millions, you know, secretly. And then all these religious conservatives in Congress found out that we were spending money on scientific research into psychic stuff and that ended that program at least on the budget truth of the matter is still going on mm. wow talking yeah. about other abilities and bending space and time or bending the field or any of that and more you have this story about being in a helicopter going on a mission i believe if i've got the story right so 18 bullet holes, one went into your chest protector, the other 17 went out, straight shot through the other side, didn't penetrate your body, but you are fully in the line of fire because the other 17 went out where physically your chest or your shoulder or your torso would have. Yeah, picture, picture me facing one direction. Right. 180 degrees the other side. There's a door gunner facing another direction. Okay. We're back to back. Okay. There's, there's a, a wall between us with a big steel, you know, transmission in it. So it's like, you can't shoot a bullet through and get out the other side. That's impossible. But I went into this LZ and there was estimated. I, I don't know where this guy, I've heard numbers, 300, 500. There was lots of bad guys. Okay. And they all opened fire on my helicopter. And one of the guys that we let off on the ground was a double agent. He was an officer for the South Vietnamese Army uh, Rangers there. and uh, But he was also apparently a VC or an NVA or something. But he was working, he was working both angles, right? So when all his, all his officers got out in front of him, he took a step back, turned around when nobody was looking, and I turn around and I see this guy pointing an automatic weapon at me, an AK-47 or brown, I don't know what it was, automatic weapon with an 18-round clip in it. 
and in slow, this whole thing's in slow-mo. I'm not telling you this, but it was like that, right? This guy turns around in slow motion. I see light coming out the end of his barrel. Light. And light is coming towards me, all around me. One hits me smack in the... I don't know if you ever got hit wearing a bulletproof vest. No. They will see, yeah, the guy gets hit and he gets up. Yeah, it's bulletproof. No, man, it just... You're bruised. Pummels you. <laughs> you're bruised, right? And the guy's only like... 10. It's like the worst paintball times a thousand, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. He's only like 10, 15 feet away at the most. Just oh, both, wow. blank. So... One round goes in my heart, literally, right where the heart's at. And it blows up and there's smoke and fire pouring out of this thing. And same time, I'm falling back against this wall and the rest of the light just goes through me. On the other side, when we finally crash, just minutes later, we crash in the jungle. Uh, I go out and I go to the other side of the helicopter and my gunner slumped over his gun and he's got 17 holes in him. Mm. big jagged shrapnel coming out from the bullets and everything. And there's 17 exit holes behind his body. It's like all the exit holes are right, you know, opposite of me. Not one entry hole on my side, all exit holes on his side. So boom, went, disappeared, come out the other side. So that's a, that's a real long, there's a lot more involved in it, but the only most important part was, I'll, I'll spoil alerts. I didn't get killed. <laughs> uh, I got left behind for eight hours, chased around the jungle, emptied a machine gun, barrel, board, you know, all kinds of stuff happened. Got put in for medals. But that's not the story. The story is when I get back and they, they bring the helicopter back and I got this whole team of people, remember the CID and the CIA? They're out there looking at the bullet hole pattern and they're going, well, where these, where's the entry holes for these, right? There's, there's got to be an entry hole, right? right? And I'm trying to explain to him, well, the light, it just went through. And it's like, so that was on the file for the CIA as well, right? So the CIA wanted to know what I could teach them, show them, or how they could engineer that. And I laughed, right? <laughs> I said, well, if you want to do 50, 60 years of Korea Yod, maybe, maybe you might be able to, to bend the direction of the bullets. I said, but it happened to me because... It happened to me, you know, it was just, yeah. it's, it, it, it was what it was, but it was like, I wasn't there. It just it went through. And it was, it was interesting. It just didn't go into the behind me, which would have been interesting, but it came out the other side. So it's interesting karma for that guy. He did get fixed up. He did live. He, he came back eventually. Wow. So he it, fully recovered. The force of, 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 of the bullets, it just broke him into fragments. So basically he got shrapnel all over. So they were like all, just a half inch, three quarters of an inch deep into his body. So he just matter pulling him up, but it was bloody. So, but I imagine you being where you were probably saved his life somehow beyond our understanding. <laughs> yeah, there was everybody was shaking their head on that. And, uh, and then uh, there was like every week, every week something would happen in Vietnam that would be on the level of that. I mean, lots and lots. What's odd is a story I've never told. It's in my book, but I never tell it. My mother, who was kind of a gypsy, psychic, you know, lady, fortune teller. She sends me the thing. She says, I had three dreams. And she writes out the dreams. One of them was just this crazy dream. She says, it's a little village or something in Vietnam. 
and and there's two soldiers. She says it's like the opening scene for Gunsmoke, the the Western TV show, right? Where they're standing on the street and the guys draw weapons on each other, you know, Gunsmoke, you know, boom. And she says, but the guys they draw and shoot each other, but nobody gets shot. So she said, that was an odd dream. So I said, okay. The other dream, she says, you're in a helicopter. People are really shooting at you, and there's a forest fire going on. And you got a guy jumping out. He's a machine gunner, and 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 he's got an ammo bearer behind him. A couple of guys carrying ammunition for him, and he's gung ho. And he gets out there and he fires. The guy with the ammo didn't get there. There he is, right? So she tells me the whole thing. She describes the whole thing, what the LZ looked like, you know, the weather, everything, right? And then there was one other thing she described. But so I believed it so much because. I went to my buddies. I said, you know what mission we went on today? And I showed him how she described it. I said, is that what it looked like? Yeah, I'm sorry, LZ today. I said, here's what she said about downtown. And then they laughed. Yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. I said, I'll tell you what. If my mother says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. We can get three-hour pass today before, you know, three hours. We're going downtown. Okay. So we hopped on a back of a jeep. We went downtown. We waited around and waited around. Nothing happened. I'm outside. These guys are, yeah. This crazy bill. And I said, no, no, something will happen. So I'm just getting ready to load, go back. And this drunk GI comes out. All right, he's got a gun. And this other guy across the street comes off another bar. All right, they shoot a couple times at each other. Nobody gets hit. You know, one goes into a sign and one goes someplace else. And these guys just look at me and they go, it's exactly what she said. I said, yeah. <laughs> Didn't you, you listen know? to me? <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's, you know, people are always, you know, it's amazing to me sometimes because you tell somebody something. And I matter of factly say something, and when it's happened, it's like they're like, but they don't want to believe it. It's like, well, I've got a sort of blanket question for you, forgive me. But what is your greatest, or what is the greatest revelation that you have had in your life? It happened from a rainbow body experience. Tell me about it. I was, I meditated. So I was young. I had uh, my kids were both infants, very infant and toddler, and uh, it was uh, an evening after I just meditated about two hours, and I did about an hour of, of chanting from. This is the old days. S Self Realization Fellowship had records of the chants, right? Mm-hmm. And I put the chant on and chant with it. And then when I got through it, put the needle back again and chant. So kind of a little disruptive, like you, now you could do a digital and have this beautiful thing going. But anyway, so I was, when I finished my long meditation, it felt so wonderful. I felt so light going to bed. It just felt so, I felt so connected. I was laying there. And uh, in fact, people that don't have a video of this, but you can see that, that's a picture of, that's the last portrait or last picture photo taken of Yogananda mm-hmm. before he passed away. And uh, I had that sitting on my nightstand. I got in bed. I just looked at that. And I just, I love you. I love you, Guru. I love you, Guru. And I'm just chanting that. And I'm, and I'm watching it. And pretty soon, all I've got is two eyes there. And then all of a sudden, Boom. I'm out of my body. I'm out of this creation. I'm out of this whole thing. It's like I'm, I'm gone. 
and I'm I'm whisking through the sky, the cosmos, the air, whatever, through the void, kind of like Star Trek when he goes into hyperspace and he warp drive and he sees lights go. Uh-huh. It's like that, right? When I had that experience about 40 years ago or more, for a long time, I thought I was traveling. I was traveling. And then I woke up one day about five years ago and I go, how can I be traveling if it was going all directions, up, down, sideways? It was going, and I realized it was never traveling. I was expanding. Mm. Consciousness was expanding. I was aware of this expanding universe out there. This, I don't know what word to say because cosmos, universe, galaxy, it's no place I could imagine. It was beyond all that. I could feel everything. I could taste the light. I could see the sound of Om, which was permeated in every particle of energy in the universe. There was this Om. And when I looked at it really carefully, it was like all these rotating atoms and nuclear, all these elements moving around, all that energy. Mm-hmm. It was making this Om humming sound. But it was being projected by love. Love is the energy that moves that and the sound it makes is all. That's my thought at the time. I'm going, and it wasn't just a thought because it was, I'm traveling and I realized I have a body, but it's not a body body. It's a film of rainbow light. Mm. Or I'm this rainbow that's traveling through Whatever, no words to describe. And while this was going on, I realized that I wasn't alone. I was one with this rainbow. This rainbow had other egos in there, other self-identified beads. And I say that because ego self-identified. In other words, I believe in the one and we're one, but there's a still you identify with the I. Therefore, you have a body. If the body is just a rainbow, there's still some kind of identification or you wouldn't have a body at all. But I felt we, us, I, the greater I, we had a mission. And this group traveling in this rainbow body, their job was to incarnate periodically in various places, earth, wherever, and their job was to bring the level of, of spiritual energy up wherever they go, whatever culture, that they would go into these worlds and these take on these lives with no knowledge of what they know and, and, and remember where they're from. They'd come in and do their mission and stuff. And at the end, they would kind of remember and that'd be enough, right? But they would choose to voluntarily go back once they got off this wheel of reincarnation here they've permanently chose to keep coming back mm-hmm. to elevate. That's what I was getting from this. And it was like 
200 to 300 million years, this experience. I mean that. It was timeless. It felt because I was seeing the beginning and I was seeing the, the awful Omega. I was, I was seeing both ends of this thing for, for 200 million years. 300 perhaps. It was like an eon or whatever. It was like some kind of time cycle, but it was that cycle. I could see the beginning of that cycle and the end of it. And I felt such great love. Not only did I feel love, I was love. So you say, what's the greatest thing I learned? That if you look at loves out there, you're missing it. Because you are love. Yes. God is love, but you are love. It's all it's all love. And when you keep looking for anything on the exterior, on the outskirts of this, you're missing who you really are. You'll be surely disappointed. Yeah. So there I was, and it was, we could do a show just on this. Trust me, I mean, I could go on five hours on this. But there was so much I came back. It wasn't until all of a sudden I remembered I had children and a wife. It was the end. I remembered I had an existence. I was born. I was back in now, this now, the current now. You were thrown back into your body. Oh, like a ton of bricks. Yeah. Um, when I came back and I learned things, saw things, know things, some things I, I, I can't, I, there's no words. I, it's like trying to describe the color yellow to somebody that's blind. How do you sure. compare it to another? I mean, it's like, or a taste of an orange if nobody's ever had one. How do you describe a taste of an orange? It was that kind of, everything that happened was like at that level. But there were some things that I was forbidden to talk about. I mean, literally could never talk about, never talk about. These are like mysterious things that you don't open that door for everybody. I don't know why. Uh, I guess I did. Yeah. I, I, I did, but now I can't tell you why. Yeah. And there's some things that were just erased. Okay. I've shown all these things, done all these things, but you're not going to, you're not retaining it this end. Some things I came back and then as decades went by, years went by, Oh, oh, it's like I wasn't traveling. I was expanding. That took me three and a half decades to go. Oh, so it's one of those experiences that every so many years, I'm still gaining from it. The well is still there and I'm still pulling up water from the well. There's a lot of things that happen in life. And if you stop and think about them and analyze them, that's where you make the mistake. To me, stuff happens and I go, stuff happens, move on. Next, you go to your guru, what does the guru tell you? Go chop firewood, fetch water, sweep the porch, right? Right. That's where your life should be. When you have things happen like these, it's just stuff. Don't get hung Stop up on wood. Yeah, if, if you start meditating for the experiences, you've lost the whole reason to meditate. You meditate to love God, right? spend time with the divine, not for powers, not for abilities, not even for peace, not even for enlightenment. Just go to love God. The rest of stuff comes like a gift. If you need it, if you want it, it's not important. It doesn't matter. That's right. It's just frosting on the cake. 
And it may not even be that sweet because cities can trip you up on your path to God if you're not careful. Bill, Bill McDonald, yes, thank you for letting <laughs> us drink from your waters for the past hour and a half. And I have to say, I would consider this interview part one. And I have to have you back to answer about 30 other questions and then some that I didn't even get to. So we'll let our audience digest this. And then I would love to have you back. Well, thank you. This is just a stroll in the uh, spiritual park, right? That's right. (laughs) Hey, guys, thanks for checking out the Spiritual Geek Out podcast. If you like what you're hearing here, check out more by subscribing on your favorite platform. Or go to spiritualgeekout.com.